what Jesus is doing with Lazarus, this raising from the dead, is a divine object lesson, as it were, of what Jesus is going to do. He wants us to know the inevitability of death. Like all of us will have a chapter 11 in our lives. A chapter 11 of death. And when sorrow and death does come, what will our response be? How is it that we will respond? Will we respond how the sisters responded? Or will we respond like the Jews responded? That's the question that we have uh, to face. Now let me give a little context. That's a key verse. Uh, let me give you a little context, all right? It starts with the tension. Lazarus is ill. Lazarus is ill. Now, the meaning of Lazarus in Hebrew, it's Eliezer. The meaning is God whom God answers. And it seems like it, there is a hint that God is delaying the answer. He's not really answering right away. There's this delay. And, and so that's the tension. And then it speaks to us about two sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, they seem to be well-known because after Lazarus has passed away, there are the this crowd of Jews have come out from Jerusalem, and they want to grieve with Mary and Martha. But not just that, they seem to be well-to-do. Uh, for one, the tomb that's been used is built into a cave. It's dug out. It's the cave with a stone rolled in. You remember how when the Lord Jesus Christ died, you see, it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea who was rich. So this seemed to be well-to-do. But when Lazarus is sick, they sent word to Jesus. Now, Jesus had moved on to, the, uh, to beyond Jordan because the, the Jews were wanting to stone him. And yet, though rejected and, uh, you know, uh, they say no to Jesus, he still remains accessible to those who desire him. And when he hears, when Jesus hears about Lazarus, he actually stays another two days before coming to Bethany. Now, he comes to Bethany, and, and it's been four days since Lazarus has, has died. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And, it, and then there's a response. The way the Jews responded. We read the way Jews responded in verse 45. Many believed in him. But verse 46, few of those, Pharise few of those Jews went and reported to the Pharisees. Uh, the question that we, we are asking is, how will our response be? And so I want us to look at this passage in three parts. How do the people respond? How do the Lord respond? And how will you respond? Three parts we want to look at. The first one is, how do the people respond? How do the people respond? Let me give to you the response of Mary. Now in verse 2 it says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now I want us to understand that this, this part of Mary wiping the feet of, of uh, Jesus is going to happen. It's, it's mentioned only in the next chapter. It's only happening in chapter 12. But this is such an extraordinary act. This is such a unique act that what is happening is it's become the adjective of Mary. When Mary has been mentioned, this act that she does is the way she's been identified with. 
I want to bring to your attention two things about Mary. One is about her worship, her worship. And I want you to think about this, the, the, um, the extravagance of her worship. Now, if you have an alabaster box, you would take that and dab it. And that's all you do. But what Mary does is she breaks it, pours it at the feet of Jesus, and worships and wipes, wipes uh, the feet of Jesus with, the, with, with her hair. Now, I want you to think about this. I don't know what perfume you use, Chanel 5 maybe, all right? You, you take the Chanel 5 and your daughter comes to you, breaks the Chanel 5, pours it on your feet and says, Mommy, I love you. I don't know what your response is going to be. <laughs> think about it. No wonder the disciples were like, this is crazy. This is extravagant. This is not necessary. That is what the disciples were saying. And, and, and Mary is saying that, you see, my extravagance is nothing compared to the excellence of Christ. That is what worship is. The excellence of Christ is, is much greater than the extravagance of my worship. Mary, his adjective, uh, is just that, who anointed the Lord with ointment. But not just that, I want you to notice her posture. The posture, that every time Mary is mentioned, the first time you hear about Mary is in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10, you know, you see Martha is saying, you got to tell my sister, you need to get up from there and need to help me. And, and the Lord says, no, she has found the better part. So the first time you read about Mary, she is at the feet of Jesus Christ learning the word. And now here, the next time we hear about Mary is in verse 11, chapter 11. We read about her in verse 32, where it says, Now when Mary had come to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you were here. She pours out her sorrow. She learns at his feet. She pours out her sorrow at the feet of Jesus. And in the next chapter, chapter 12, verse 3, we see that she gives him this worship, this pouring out, this breaking of the alabaster box and, and worshiping uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to understand the extraordinariness of this. You see, because she is from a culture where letting your hair loose is a sign of, of an immoral woman. And she takes what's her glory, her glory, and she uses that to wipe the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, that's what we read in chapter 12. But I want you to notice the contrast between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Chapter 12, Mary is trying to make herself as nothing. She says, just like John the Baptist, who says, let him increase and I decrease. And she says, my glory is nothing compared to the excellencies of Christ. But you get to chapter 13 and see what the disciples, they refuse to get up and wipe the feet of each other and the Lord himself had to do it her posture so Mary her response is that but not just that but look at the response of Martha in verse 20 in verse 20 when Martha had heard Jesus was coming she went up and met him but Mary remained seated in the, in the, in the house I want you to first notice a conversation she, he, she seems to have a theology right now, that's a great question we need to ask ourselves, right? We, we, we have a good song theology. We have a good, uh, you know, communication theology. I can tell you God is great. He answers my prayers. He's great. But the moment I have, when I'm having a, a, a sickness, when there's death, when there's suffering, my theology changes. My song changes. I'm not able to say the same thing. 
Suffering really clarifies your theology. And Martha was able to talk about, I, he, she says there, you say, if you were here, it would not have happened. But then she goes on to say, but I know whatever you ask, uh, God will still give it to you in verse 22. And Jesus speaks to her. And then later there's this confession. I want you to no notice not just a conversation, but her confession in verse 27. Jesus, uh, she said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What a confession. Except for the woman, uh, this, uh, the, the woman by the well, the Samaritan woman by the well, or Peter and Matthew. There's, there's this confession that, she, that Jesus is Christ, and, and Martha is able to give such a confession. What a response. But contrast that with the response of the Jews. The Jews have this response. In verse 45, you saw that many were divided. Look at verse 45. In 45, we read... Many Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, who had been there, believed on him, but verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus has done. You see, they've seen probably one of the greatest miracles they had ever seen, but nothing changes them. And I want us to know, miracle is no guarantee that they will believe. And sometimes we say, I need to see a miracle. I want to be able to see how God is working, and I'll believe. And here is a good indication that miracle is no guarantee for belief. In fact, they, you know, remember Luke chapter 16 where the rich man says, rich man says to Abraham, if someone raises from the dead, they'll believe in chapter 16. Here is someone, Lazarus has come from the dead, but they don't believe. They, in fact, want to stone him. They want to kill him. That's the response of the Jews. And I, and I just want to say this, this rigidity of, of their, of, uh, of the Jews, this, this unwillingness to get out of the pit that they've dug themselves in. You see, they, nothing is going to shake them. Nothing is going to shake them from their unbelief. That's the tragedy. And the re response of the council, the response of the council, they, they, they go and, and the Pharisees get the council together and they decide that it's time to kill Jesus. One man has to die. And I want you to understand this. You see, in, in John chapter 3 already, Nicodemus had said this, we know you're from God because if you're not from God, you can't do this kind of work. So it's not ignorance that they have decided, but this is rebellion. This is blatant rebellion. They have decided, no, I want to do nothing with Jesus. Caiaphas, uh, he's the worst, I would think. You know, he really is because again and again, they're confronted. You read about Caiaphas even until Acts. After all those things that have happened, he, the, the gods have come and told him that we have seen the tomb open and, uh, and you know, he, he tries to bribe them with money so that they can keep quiet and give them the stole, that he can, they can spread the stole theory to the rest of the Jews. Response. That's a good thing that we need to ask. But there's also the response of the dead. The response of the dead, you know, this is not the first time Jesus is raising someone from the dead. We have the 
the son of the widow from Cain, uh, from Nain, sorry. And then there's the Jairus' daughter. But this is unique. This is different because it's at least four days. It's been four days. And in the hot Middle Eastern sun, there would be, there would be decay that would have been set. And this is something different. This is unique. And when Jesus calls out to the dead, they come walking out. And that's the very powerful statement. It to say, death, I'm going to put you to death. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. They that believe in me, even though they die, they will live. You see, John had already told to us in John chapter 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And that's been demonstrated right here. The response. So what I want to invite you to do is to just pause Let's just pause here and to ask ourselves, who of these do we relate to? The extravagance of Mary's worship, the confession of Martha, or is it like the Jews from Jerusalem, the council? Or like the dead, I'm not sure among us if there's anybody who still hasn't believed in Jesus Christ, doesn't know that Jesus is the resurrection and life and that believing in him, you would have life in you. Who are you? Who do you want to be? May the Spirit of God speak into a heart to show that Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life. But how did the Lord respond? How did the Lord respond? Towards his disciples first. How did the Lord respond towards his disciples? And, and um, you see what's happening in verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and now you're going there again. Jesus saying, you know, let's go. And, and disciples are like, it doesn't make sense. They, they were planning to stone you. And when they see that Jesus has made up his mind, he wanted to return back to Bethany, and Thomas takes on the charge, saying, that, well, let's go and die with him. You know, like he doesn't, like Thomas doesn't recognize that, no, the death that Jesus is going to die is not the death that I can die. He cannot die that. None of the disciples can die that death. It's, it's, it's a totally different kind of a death that Jesus is going to die. But, but Thomas is ready. He says, no, let's go and die with him. But this is the response that Jesus gives almost like a cryptic answer. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in a day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the day. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What Jesus was saying metaphorically is that as you walk in the day, if you walk in the will of the Father, you will not stumble. If you are in the will of the Father, you will not stumble. It's like walking in the day. And you disciples, I am the light of the day, light of the world. If you walk with me, it's like walking in the day and you will not stumble. That's a good courage to have as we walk. That we don't stumble 
when we walk in the will of the Father. But you see, um, I, I want us to see the Lord's response towards the sisters. Lord's response towards the sisters. In verses 5 and 6, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister uh, and Lazarus. And when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he, he stayed two days longer in the place where he, he was. Two things about the response. First, love delayed delays for a reason. Love delays for a reason. You see, we, we, expect re, uh, we expect love, sorry, to respond immediately. That's what love is all about, right? I mean, mothers, you know that. You see a child in need, you just have to respond immediately. We, we respond immediately, and that's the expectation of love. When, and, but on the other hand, when we don't see God respond immediately, he, we have accused him of, God, why do you take so long? If you love me, if you really love me, why do you take so long? This has been the question that this question that we ask and we see here that there is a delay and not just that in verse 14 and 15 he actually says that he is glad that he was not there when Lazarus died so it's not just that there was a delay but Jesus is saying that that he was glad now that's a difficult statement to understand it's difficult because if we see it with our own eyes we will not understand but i want to draw your attention to be able to see this in the light of the glory of god in verse 4 so turn to verse 4 which is our key verse it says there but when jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death for it is for the glory of god so that the son of god may be glorified through it and i want to i want to underscore this fact that love that works for and through the glory of god is the kind of love that you and i want and that's the kind of love which is the pure and holy love any love that does not seek to glorify god is a dangerous sinful love it's a you know, we come across different kinds of love. Woman and a man, a husband and a wife, or a mother and a child, or a father and a child, or, you know, you draw a relationship. And if that kind of love is not for the glory of God, then there is going to be some problem there. If it's a selfish kind of a love, there's going to be a problem there because, you know, I love till I can get if it's for anything else, and that is what God is trying to say, it ought to be, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, it ought to be for the glory of God and the Son of God would be glorified through that. That's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. Love delays, but that's the love we so desire. But not just that, love deals with them as individuals. I, I just love this because, you know, what God is saying, the way I treat, it, it's different strokes for different folks. The way I, I deal with one is not the way I deal with someone else because I deal with them in their particular need so that their answers are satisfied in me. I, I want you to turn to 21, verse 21 there. Martha, I want you to notice that both the sisters ask the same question to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 says, Martha said to Mary, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. That's verse 21. But jump down to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if, you had not, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. Both 
have the same question, but it's just amazing. I want you to notice that the response that Jesus has is not the same. Martha, if she were to have, you know, a personality test in colors, we did that some years ago at the retreat, she would turn out to be red. She's this active, this go-getter. She's always this action. She wants, she's a rational, logical type. And she wants answers. She wants to know why, what is happening? What is this all about? She wants to know the next steps. And Jesus replies to her by giving her the assurance of resurrection from the Old Testament. Talks to her theology tells her exactly how it's going to pan out and leads her to this confession. Through confession, she worships Jesus Christ as the Christ. But then you get to Mary. Mary is, the, uh, Mary is white, if you, if, you, if you want to know. She's the, she's the one who wears her heart on her sleeve. She's the emotional type. She's the one who shows emotion. This is the exciting part, right? I mean, like, when the Lord does come, Martha gets up to go to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody follows her. But when Mary gets up, they all just get up and go with her. She's like the people's person. She's like, okay, I need to go with Mary. She, 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 she emotes well with people. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord doesn't give her theology because she says, I want to be heard, not to hear. I want to be understood, not to understand. Don't tell me. Just grieve with me in silence. And that's what Jesus does. He weeps. He grieves with Mary. What love? What love? What about um, towards death and unbelief? See, there are a few things that caused our Lord Jesus Christ to be angry. One of that is unbelief. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, we, we see that it's on a, on a Sabbath in a synagogue, and he looks around, and, and he asks this question, is it okay to heal on a Sabbath? And they all just hold a silence. They're like just waiting for him to do some work so they can accuse him. And it says that, that he was grieved and he was angry at unbelief. In verse 33 and verse 38, where it says he, uh, he was moved, deeply moved, the word is indignant. It's like the strong says, it's like the snorting of the horse. It's like anger. Snorting of the horse. Like you can, you can, you know, you can imagine the sound too. And though it's not clarified, we'll see that what, what Jesus is angry with is what death has done because of sin to people. And, and on top of that, now you have unbelief. People who are refusing to believe that here is Jesus, the resurrection and life, and they're refusing to believe in him, and that angers him. Belief and undeath, and death. The Lord keeps the strongest statement that targets death. He says, I'm the resurrection and life. I'm in total contrast to death because I'm life. And anybody who dies in me will have resurrection because of me. I'm not that I'm going to be resurrection. It's not that I'm going to be life, but I am resurrection. I am life. It's the God of the present tense, he tells Martha. The God 
of the now. And so he presents himself. When he says, I am, he's saying, I am that God that you, Martha, have been talking about. You know, you've read about, I am that God. And Jesus presents himself as a solution to the greatest problem that we have, sin and death. And he, uh, Warren Wiersbe has this to say, when you're sick, you want a doctor and not a medical book or a formula. When you're sued, you want a lawyer and not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, death, you want the Savior, not a doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. The solution that we have is Jesus Christ. It's not a process. It is not a place. It is not a practice. It's Jesus Christ. He says, I am the resurrection and life. So I want us to pause and thank. Let's just take some time to pause and to thank, to be grateful for the love of God that acts for the glory of God and that meets our need. I want to lead you to the third part of our response. How will you respond? You see, I want to ask you three questions, and that will clarify that. It says, how will you respond when tested severely, when you're tested in the most trying ways? I told you chapter 11 is in, inevitable in all our lives. You see, death and suffering is in, inevitable. Chapter 11 is a good way to remember. I know chapters are not inspired, uh, but chapter 11, you think about the bankruptcy, you know, in the U.S., so it's, total, it's about this total bankruptcy of the soul. What do you do? How do you respond? Does your faith hold your theology? Is your faith in Christ strong enough to take you through the storm? Or are we just a fair-weather Christian? We can sing, we can, you know, we can talk about him. But when, when suffering hits us, we have to watch which direction we are running towards. Are we running towards Christ or running away from him? The direction of our running will tell us what we truly believe and who we truly trust. Sometimes we, you know, we, we want to numb ourselves. You know, we binge. Maybe we binge watch Netflix. I don't know. We binge trying to, you know, drown our sorrows. Or we binge sleep. We want to sleep it up. You know, let me sleep it up. That's the response we get. There's a great verse in Luke chapter 22, verse 45. This is what it says. But when he rose from prayer, this is Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he had told his disciples to pray, 
and then it says, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. That's exactly what we do sometimes. We sleep for sorrow because we just don't want to face reality. We just don't, want, we just don't have any more strength without just going to sleep it, off, sleep it off. In the morning, everything's going to be okay. No, time is not a good healer. Time sets the bones wrong. We need to be running to Christ. Running to Christ. The second question I'd like you to answer is, how does your love glorify God? We, we just saw that love must seek to glorify God as a means before it can be directed at anyone or anything. It is through the eyes of the, this, this glory of God, through this channel of the glory of God, that love would be good. You see, love is a very personal and a very powerful thing. We, we, we read about that. We, we studied this on Friday. You see, if we love something, but we believe something else, we think we believe something else, when there is a problem, we adjust our belief to match our love. We rationalize. We adjust what we believe to really what we love. We, you know, try to look up verses and try to justify what we really love. Our heart is telling us what we love, and we will find every excuse that will prove to you that that is true. But Christian faith, uh, faith in Christ Jesus, is about moving our love to what is truly to be believed. Moving our love to the things that we love on our own apart from God that we move that love to loving God because that is what true belief ought to be. So the question, do we seek to love to glorify God or glorify selfishly our own selves and love our own selves, love we might think for, you know, whatever, whatever else we love apart from God is always, it always ends up to be selfish. Even the philanthropist, the one who gives billions of money, he really is giving or she is really giving because there was some legacy, some name building, some brand building that happens. Any love apart from Christ for the glory of God is not a love that we must love with. Now the third question I want to ask is, how has your life attitude changed since the suffering? How has your life attitude changed? You see, we, we, we said, chapter 11, this chapter of death and suffering is inevitable. If you're in Christ or not in Christ, it doesn't matter. We live in a fallen world. This is inevitable. But the point you have to ask is how has this changed your life attitude? When, you're, when you go through the conflict, through the storm, how has that directed your attitude to the worship of God? How has that led you? How has that moved to that needle? Because it ought to be about the worship of God. That's what Mary did. That's what Martha did. And when God was not glorified through whatever God took them through, you know, the Jews or Caiaphas or the council, or you make the list. 
that was a problem. And so I, I, I pray that these, these questions as I ask myself are the questions that you would ask yourself because, you know, I, when I read this passage, one other unique thing that stands out is that the Lord loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And in verse 5, in verse, that we read that in verse 3, in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and, sis, uh, and uh, his sister Lazarus. And, and um, sorry, in verse 5 we read that. In verse 3 we read, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Whom you love is ill. So what is happening is Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and they are assured of his love. That's a beautiful picture. We are assured of his love, and that they, they could turn to Christ in a time of need. So I'm going to give us a couple of minutes to examine our hearts. How has our response been? How, how did we respond? Did, did we respond where... Um, you know, we, we, we ran to Christ. Does it show a love that glorifies God? And did it lead to the worship of our God? Father God, we come to you, Lord. We come to you with this recognition that apart from you, there is absolutely no way we want to live, and that you, you have given us your son, the resurrection and life. May he be the one who is the Lord of our life. May he be the one who we run to each time. May he be the one who we love. May he be the one who is glorified and worshiped in our lives. We want to have the same response as that of Martha and of Mary. We want to have the same kind of devotion and love and confession of our, of our lips and the, and the worship of our heart that matches that of Mary and of Martha. Help us, Lord, that our eyes would be lifted up and we are able to see the excellencies of Christ. Help us, O oh Father, to recognize that there is no extravagance that we can ever reach in this world. No, not just in this world, but in the worlds and the ages to come. Our extravagance, our most, is nothing compared to the excellencies of Christ. Help us, therefore, Lord, not to measure our effort in terms as a sacrifice, but as a privilege to live out for the King of kings and the glory and, and for his glory. We pray, O oh God, that you would see us as ones who are not just desirous of that, but as ones who are disciplined, as ones who are intentional, as ones who live for the glory of the Son of God, that he be glorified in our lives, that he would be lifted up, that as he is lifted up, that you will draw all men to yourself, even through us, even through this local church, and through all the heads that are bowed. We offer this 
prayer with thanksgiving, for you have answered our prayers in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, and all God's people said, Amen.